It's Thursday, June 16th, 2016, and you're listening to episode 404 of Fear the Boot, a show about tabletop role-playing games and a little bit more. Running time for this episode is 56 minutes. Welcome to Fear the Boot. My name is Dan. This is Wayne. This is Brodor. And joining us today is someone who's both a guest and not Aisha. Hello. All right, so I'll explain why Aisha is and is not a guest in a moment. But before I do that, I got two things we got to get through. First off, I have to correct something you guys said in 403. You guys said that the Pulp Gamer Network is shutting down and made it sound like the entire show is going away. Like they're not going to be doing this stuff for Mayfair or Gam anymore. No, no, they're just shutting down the podcast network of other shows. Ah, their we stuff, made it sound like that because you didn't explain it well enough to us. So we thought well, that was what because was in my mind, Pulp Gamer, the podcast and Pulp Gamer, the network are two unrelated things. So maybe that was poor communication. It was probably not. But that's what's going on. Pulp Gamer is not going anywhere. They have just decided that they don't want to try and keep maintaining a network of podcasts. So for that reason, we have decided to throw our lot in with the RPG Academy, which you'll now start hearing in the sign-off for the show. The other thing is this past weekend, we had DrewCon, which you guys mentioned in 403. Because DrewCon was the fan convention that was replacing Fear the Con since we weren't able to have it this year because its location has literally been bulldozed. And so I want to give a thanks to everyone that attended, but particularly to Bob, Derek, and Adam, for being so kind as to run the convention, do all the hard work they did to raise the funds, to organize everything, and to put it on. It was a great time. I had a wonderful time hanging out with people, trying Bob's really demented dungeon, and also playing a Warhammer 40k My Little Pony mashup. Yeah, it was nice just showing up to a convention and not having to worry about if anyone was going to show up or worrying about any organization or any of that. Yeah, I have to say, I'm, I'm sorry I wasn't there, but I had a great time at my brother's getting together with some old friends and gaming all weekend. So we had a convention of our own, if you will. But, you know, Bob's Demented Dungeon, that sounds like a supplement that I would have stolen from Walden Books in the 80s. I think I have that DVD. <laughs> I like that you said it was a DVD and not a book. <laughs> so, all right. Introducing Aisha, as you guys know, because we mentioned it in previous episodes, we've just started up this Patreon thing. And a big thanks to everyone that's supporting that and to helping make it happen. And if you want to get on board with that to hear our negative episode content, which apparently I have some to release now, <laughs> and to You're welcome. hear the show raws where Brodor and Pat are completely unbridled, You're welcome. then that's all out there. But our first milestone was to get an audio editor on board so that I could start focusing on other aspects of the show. And Aisha is that audio editor. So all of the past several episodes that you've heard have been brought to you by her more than me. So Aisha, I want to welcome you to the Fear the Boot team. And it's great having you on this show. And unless people hate you, maybe we'll have you back on as a guest in future shows or even a regular host. Who knows? And if they do hate you, we'll definitely have you back on twice as much. Oh, out of spite. Definitely. Yeah. So Aisha, tell us a little about yourself. How did you get your start in gaming? What are your, some of your favorite systems? Who is Aisha? As far as gaming goes, I mean, six years ago, I was recently moved to Alaska. I sat down at a table 
My roommate was like, here, take this, read this, we're going to play Dark Heresy. And every Thursday for the next couple of years, we did Dark Heresy and then Shadowrun, and then things pretty much snowballed from there. I'm still pretty new to the whole scene, but I mean, that's tabletop gaming for you. Play one game and you're hooked. That is, man. It's starting you in Dark Heresy. They went bareback. So, <laughs> <laughs> so of the systems you have played, what's your favorite? Mechanically, that's a tough call. Um, definitely flavor-wise, it's Shadowrun. Fifth edition, fourth edition. Uh, fourth edition, either 2072 or 2050. I don't like the whole hackers sitting on couches thing, so I tend to prefer 2050. Yeah, well, that was a whole part of the shadow run that a lot of times doesn't occur anymore. It was it an was, outsource. Was well, you had to get to the port to hack, right? Because things weren't wireless. I mean, the game really did not account for the internet, but I guess you still could have a protected corporate land that requires you to break into the corporation to get to. But it used to be a major part of every mission was if you wanted to hack something, you had to get to a port to do it. Oh, no, I was going the other direction that the the hacking rules were so convoluted and such an insufferable pain in the ass that it was a separate game in the game. Well, we just in character, we just wanted to outsource it to somebody else. So the a person in the party did not actually have to be you know, to be the decker and the rest of us are sitting out while they're doing their decking thing. We just shorthanded it. We had the same problem, but we just shorthanded it. We just kind of abbreviated the whole thing to a few stats on the deck and a few rolls of the dice. So somebody could play the decker, but it wasn't like you were running two games. Right. Where the decker can't do anything and then you stop the game and only the decker can do anything. Astral Combat, though, can get just as bad if you're... Agreed. ...not careful with that. I've just never been in a group willing to play it. But then again, I also don't like cyberpunk. So what's not to love? Here's what we're gonna do: we're gonna take Blade Runner and then we're gonna shove D and D into it. We're gonna put peanut butter in your chocolate, Wayne, and it's gonna be fucking awesome. (laughs) You've just described why Chad hates it. I know. He literally almost verbatim just gave why Chad hates it. No, I've never pushed any group to want to play it because, like I said, I'm not a cyberpunk guy. Right. It doesn't appeal to me at all. I would play it. I will try any system, any setting, at least once. But I've never really felt the need to try to convince anyone to play it because it's cyberpunk. Right. That's not my genre at all. On its face, it sounds horrible and it's amazing. Because did I mention, by the way, you don't have anything valuable necessarily to offer society other than being a low rent villain who's going to steal stuff for these corrupt corporations. And that's how you make your living. Yeah. Literally not having a social security number is your most marketable skill. (laughs) I think they renamed it, but at one point it's called The Sin. The Sin, yeah. Didn't they later rename it? System identification number. Yeah, didn't they later rename it to like a San or something like that? I don't know. But you were called The Sinlet. Because like your Sin was your social security number, but also had like genetic profile. Like if you had one, you were in the system. Like, I mean, they would know or could figure out kind of where you were and what you were doing. So people that had somehow either never been picked up by the system or had paid enough money to have been removed from it, these were people who are called sinless. And the sinless were the shadow runners because you didn't know who they were. Their genetic details didn't match up to anybody. Or the retinal details didn't match up to anybody. Not having a social security number is your most marketable skill. Yeah, shadow run and team debate is how I survived high school. So Aisha, something that we're hoping to be able to pull off here and I want to have you involved in if you are so willing is if we reach our next milestone on the Patreon, we're going to start doing actual plays that we're going to release, and we're going to put them on Twitch so people can get involved and comment. We will also have saved off video and then ripped audio, so if you want to consume them that way. But for our first game, 
uh, one of the lead authors on 5th edition, Mark Dyna, has volunteered to run a Shadowrun game for us. So we are going to get an authoritative tour of Shadowrun 5th edition. Well, that's going to be really fun. I mean, I'm bad at the crunch part of it, but I'm certainly going to enjoy the rest. Are you going to correct his knowledge of Seattle? (laughs) (laughs) Probably not, because that Seattle and this Seattle are so different anyway. I mean, the timelines diverge four years ago, so who knows? Oh my gosh, you're right. Yeah, because Shadowrun started in 2012, because that's when the Awakening was, because they went off of the Mayan calendar thing. It's awesome, Wayne. You should play it. <laughs> I find that it's really, really good. Even if like you just want to use the setting with customized or pared-down rules for people who don't like crunch, there's just so much to explore. So you said that was your favorite setting. What about system-wise? System-wise, it's hard for me to decide... I really like Dark Heresy's sort of simplicity, and I'm finding that with Blades in the Dark as well. But on the other hand, I really like how complex Shadowrun and Pathfinder can get. Although I will say my favorite for just out and out going through a dungeon and killing things is probably uh, D&D Next. What is the oldest system or setting that you've played? Well, I guess let's go with system. What is the oldest system you've played? I don't know. I don't know when games were released. Like, with D&D, did you play any prior versions? Like, did you play 3X or Pathfinder? I remember picking up, like, a second edition book. Okay. Did you actually play it? When I was a kid, but no, I didn't play it. I think I read through it and then went, wow, that looks complicated. It was, but it wasn't a bad game. I like second edition. It's an interesting question. I was thinking about what what would that answer be for me? And it's tough because I don't know when some of these things were published. Yeah. Like, I know I've done Battletech. Battletech I've, uh, goes run... back to 1982, I think. Okay, so that would predate the Ghostbusters. Yes. Because I've, the... I've run Ghostbusters. I believe it would. Well, Battletech also was a follow-up game to its prior iteration, which was Wardroids, I think, or Battledroids or something like that. I can't remember its exact name. But Battletech was actually the second iteration of that. Yeah, D&D-wise, I haven't gone any further back than 3rd edition. Yeah, 3rd edition was 1990s. So you're not... I mean, it's old, but it's not super ancient. Yeah, so I think Battletech would definitely have to be the answer for me. Yeah, because Battletech, depending on exactly what you count as the start of Battletech, is either going to be really, really early 80s, maybe arguably really, really late 70s, so probably really early 80s. I think my weakness on this front is, like, I've been into video gaming since I was playing Marathon and Diablo, but I didn't get into tabletop gaming until much later. You know, that's something I would be curious to hear your perspective on, because as someone who was there really when video gaming became a thing and was also there, at least at the start of the popularity of role-playing games, I'll put popularity in very loose quotes here, because in the 1980s, role-playing was not a popular thing per se, (laughs) But it has been fascinating to watch over the years how much tabletop role-playing games have informed video gaming. I mean, even down just to the concept of hit points and stats and level-ups and things like that. And I'm curious, have you noticed that as someone who's coming from the other side of it, getting your start in video gaming and then working backwards to role-playing games, is that something that you've noticed or to you is it just all kind of background of how the world works oh no i definitely noticed it i mean especially when you're playing games like baldur's gate and neverwinter nights that are actually based in dungeons and dragons systems it's really hard to ignore yeah and i've heard i don't know if it's true or not but the persistent rumor i've heard is dragon age was originally supposed to be baldur's gate 3 i don't know about that i haven't actually played through dragon age 
but I, I've been told that. And I told what happened was they lost the intellectual property. And so they just basically rewrote the setting and took the assets and such that they had and kind of reshaped it all. And out of that came Dragon Age. I don't doubt it. So it's interesting, year-wise, you said that you started gaming six years ago. At this point, it's only been nine for me. It's only three years before you started. And because I started later in life. And when I look back, I had never heard of a role-playing game, the tabletop kind, until I started playing. The only time I remember D&D being mentioned was the movie Salt Lake City Punk. Salt Lake City Punk. Yep, I don't know if uh, anyone here's around the table has watched. I know Chad has. He would go on and on about it because he's Chad. But there is a just a brief mention of D and D in that. That was the first time I remember it being mentioned, and that was probably late '90s. Growing up, I never even knew the concept of role playing games, despite playing a ton of video games. That's actually somewhat interesting. Whether you never even heard of them because you're in your 30s. Yeah, I mean, Aisha, it doesn't surprise me as much. I guess that she got her start with video games and whatnot because she's in her 20s. But you're in your 30s. I'm kind of surprised that it was that long into life until you even heard of D&D. Just wasn't in any of my circles. Huh. I don't know. I didn't know anybody playing them. Nobody had ever mentioned them. So you had people doing custom fangs and basement wrestling, but D&D yeah. never came up. <laughs> exactly. Well, and for me, it was more like, I mean, gaming was what was available. I knew about Dungeons and Dragons. I certainly heard about it enough. But like... I never actually tried to play because I never had anyone to play with because I was probably the nerdiest person I knew. Video game wise, I did. Well, first it was back to the Apple IIe's, but after that I did BBS games. Yeah. And but, Solar Realms Elite and Legend of the Red Dragon. Oh, yeah. Played all, all that silliness. Yeah. Trade Wars 2049. Yep. I love that game so much. But nobody ever, nobody around me, if they were playing role playing games, they never mentioned it. So I never knew about them. See, it's funny. For me, it seemed like there was, I'm 41. So I've been gaming for almost 30 years. It makes me sound really, really old. But when I was a kid, when the Nintendo came out, like you could feel it like you were there at this moment where something was going to change for everybody. Like this, this machine in every home was going to provide escapism for the masses. But I never got into video games. It wasn't until much later in life. I mean, I just got a PS4 for for Christmas this past year for my wife and mother-in-law, and I just started playing video games. I never really, really got into them. But when all my friends as a kid were gravitating toward Nintendo games and video games and Zelda and stuff, I really, really dug into role-playing games and reading uh, hmm. the Dragonlance Chronicles and playing Battletech and stuff like that. I would have. I just never had the opportunity. And I lived in the middle of nowhere, two miles outside of the city limits, up on a hill. There was no one else around. A video game I could play by myself. Role-playing game, if I would have heard about them, I would have needed to have been around people. And I couldn't walk to their houses because my parents wouldn't let me walk two miles into town. Well, they may not have been the brainiest people around, but you had your basement wrestling group. That was once I was in high school and could drive. Oh, yeah. Why would you have an idea that bad when you're younger? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, when I was younger, we were just making Molotov cocktails. <laughs> uh, no comment. No comment. <laughs> okay. So Aisha, open mic, open fire. You've been editing these jackals for several episodes now. Who's giving you headaches and who has habits they need to fix? <sighs> well... Jeez, where do I start, really? Just stay it bluntly. <laughs> where do I start? It's so bad. <laughs> Say it bluntly. Anything can be beeped. 
I'm going to just politely say that if a couple of you motherfuckers would stop deep-throating your microphones, and Dan, I know you're going to try to solve this with puff guards, but I'm not sure if that's even going to be enough. But if you could do that, that would be great. The point of the puff guard or the pop guard, it's not per se just to stop the influx of air, which it will do. It's the fact that it presents a physical barrier. Because for anyone who's not familiar with these, the like fluffy thing you put over the microphone, that's the wind guard. A pop guard or a puff guard is a circular thing. It's, just, it's not a sphere, but it's like a flat disc that is used to try and break up the flow of air. So the hardcore like P's and T's mm-hmm. that Chad's always hitting you with get kind of broken up. But the, the way they're mounted to a microphone is they actually hook to the microphone and then go several inches in front of it. And so it creates a physical barrier where you can make out with that, but you cannot get to the microphone anymore. Yeah, I'm familiar. My wife actually wears one. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that and then there's Pat who slurs like a drunken alpaca all of his words together. Like, I don't mind the cursing. The cursing I can edit out, and I'm going to be editing myself, too, so what right do I have to complain? But it's really just, like, stop acting like a courtesan at a deep-throating contest with the mics. (laughs) (laughs) And holy shit, space your words out a little more. But I I want you to hear the acid in my stomach bubbling. (laughs) (laughs) See, and you missed out on Pat, his older habit. So Dan would always complain about the ice in his cup. We found out after a couple of years, it wasn't the ice. His watch would jingle. No, he would shake it. I think Pat has one of those watches that you don't wind it. It's like self-winding based on your movements. And so what he would do is throughout the episode, I guess he's just got this now as a habit. He's used to self-winding his watch. So he shakes his hand back and forth really fast. To like shake his wrist to wind the watch. So not only is he doing this all throughout the episode, but he always holds up his wrist by the mic when he's doing it. <laughs> like he never like holds it behind his back or away. You know, See, it's straight up to the mic. I just assume it was Pat was like, "Look how nice my fucking watch is. I'm a baller." And then he just <laughs> wants to remind us that he's a baller. It was at least two years of Dan complaining about the ice before someone finally said, "But I drink water with ice, and it's never been a problem." And when you look around the table, it's like, Chad's got water, and I've got water, and it's only Pat. It's like, I guess it wasn't the water. Well, Aisha, we're going to test your stamina, because next episode, I'm going to unleash Chris. I know, and it's it, it'll be a trying time for everyone, I think. Assuming I don't fly out there and edit him with a brick once I hear it. <laughs> yeah, don't fly out here. He actually doesn't live here. He lives in Iowa. Yeah, he's closer to you than he is to us. I think. Oh, I'll just have someone uh, brick him for me then. I think I know someone in Iowa. I'm okay with this. <laughs> Can we get tape? Um, I'll see about it. The other thing is, like, with Pat, I was editing, I don't know, two or three episodes again, and there was this persistent, like, tapping on the table noise. Then I realized it sounded more like he was kneeing it from under the side. If he could stop just jerking off under the table, that would also be appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> I know what he's actually doing. I think I know what he's actually doing. He does that knee bouncing thing. You know, some people do that where like they uh, put like the ball of their foot on the floor and then bounce their foot up and down such that their knee goes up and down. I think he's doing that against the table. Well, I know he also does his adjusting back and forth in the chair throughout the episode. 
So he may be hitting the table, too. Yeah, that's possible as well. So the main topic we want to talk about today, and this is something that I started thinking about after we did the episode on the garage sale find, where we had the D&D Magenta Box exploration, the antique road show with that thing. What specifically got me thinking after that show was us kind of picking on the idea of callers, which was something that the Magenta Box rules set forth as you should appoint someone in the party who's your mapper, who maps the dungeon, and you should appoint someone who's the caller that the GM looks to to say, what's the party doing? And this person gives the answer. And we recoiled in shock and horror of this idea that you would have this degree of loss of agency within the group. But some people came back and said that, well, it was done for this reason and that reason. It actually ended up lining up pretty closely with what my guess was on the episode of why it was there, which is simply to try and shorten analysis paralysis or to reach quick decisions on things that are otherwise, you know, everything's equal. You turn left or right. You really don't have any reason to think one's different than the other. You just look to somebody and get the decision. So I started thinking about what are some ideas that were in vogue in role-playing games in the old days? Okay, so we're talking 1970s, 1980s here. And yes, I know there are still games that use these. I know that no idea totally disappears. Yes, I know the OSR is going on, the old school revolution is going on. I'm aware of these things. But these are ideas that are no longer as ubiquitous as they used to be, to where you would have to start looking towards a minority of games to find ideas that used to exist in the majority of games. And what are some of those practices that I think got dropped, or you guys think got dropped, that actually served a purpose, and maybe it was a case of some of the problems they caused the baby got thrown out with the bathwater. I've got an example of one that I've been thinking about. I love some of the older games that have the character creation random charts. For example, the Star Trek career path, where you're rolling and you go through and you discover the whole history of your character, and then you have to work out that into a character. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, where you're rolling up what kind of mutant you are, what kind of animal, some of those. Well, I sometimes have a concept and I want to build a character. I love that idea of having that option of here's a bunch of charts and you're just going to roll and figure out what are your quirks, what are your personality traits, what kind of character you are. Wayne, I'm completely with you. Indeed, that was one of the ones on my list is random charts. Now, they certainly got abused because in some cases, I think they took the place of creativity in other places, the game required you to use them. I mean, not that anyone can really make you do this, but the rules would state you're supposed to roll on this, and there was soon a chart for everything. I think people pushed back on random encounter charts, and all of the other cool charts went away. Well, I mean, you could go beyond that, because, for example, some of the old Palladium games, and like the old Fast Star Trek game had this as well, you could actually roll out the plot. Like, for example, in Star Trek, you approach an unknown planet, there was a series of charts and I know, I think Traveler has something similar to this, where what is the type of planet? What type of sentient or sapient being lives on this? And there's a whole bunch of subcharts to roll that out. What's the atmosphere of the planet like? What level of technology do they have? What form of governance do they have? What economy do they have? If you look at some of the Palladium games, for example, the Robotech ones come to mind, uh, Inv Invasion in particular, I know had one where you could roll up an adventure 
where you could be like, okay, the party walks into roll some dice, a minor town, and they find roll some dice, a group of resistance fighters that are struggling with roll some dice, a depletion of their protoculture reserves, you know, whatever. And it had all that stuff. And yeah, you also saw it at character creation. Once again, Palladium was another one. They were far from the only one that was big into random rolling for character creation. Yeah, the only game I can think of that I've bought in the last few years that has that level of rolling for randomness was Schoolgirl the RPG, based on the maid system. Yes, it's an anime schoolgirl game. I, yeah. Why am I not surprised? <laughs> <laughs> I actually played it at the uh, at Fear the Con 8. And I had so much fun that I went out and bought the game afterwards. Did you just like roll to see which laws you're breaking? <laughs> no, you roll for your character's personality trait slash weirdness. Yeah. But then there's, uh, so you have this. Roll your character's age, 2d8. <laughs> <laughs> I got to say, my favorite page in the entire Dark Heresy book has to be Roll for Perils of the Warp. I've never actually played Dark Heresy. I know what it is. But what are some of the perils of the warp in that game? Well, there was this really fun one, because like we were playing Death Watch, which is like Dark Heresy except Space Marines. Right. right. Except for kick-ass, just badass <laughs> Space Marine killers. Right. So we have a Sister of Battle in the group, and we have a Space Wolf in the group. And they roll on the Psychic Phenomena table. They get sent to Perils of the Warp, and they switch bodies for like four turns. That's one of them. The Space Marine promptly looked down, cupped his breast, and went, well, where did these come from? <laughs> <laughs> Except Sisters of Battle aren't space marines. They're actually regular humans. They're not gene-seated. They get assigned to Death Watch platoons, though. Huh. Another good one is, like, you get eaten by a warp. Where they're getting that from, well, I mean, not the character switching bodies part, but in general, and I don't know if this is still the case because I've not been following the tabletop war game, but at least in older editions of 40k, whenever you went to use a warp power, that's one of the things you would have to do, is you'd have to shoot some dice, and if it went bad that instead of actually using the warp power, you might get things like it would spawn a demon or something would like grab your psyker and drag them into the warp. Like all this really messed up stuff could happen, which was one of the advantages of playing the Tyranid because they had such a powerful controlled mind that they created something called the shadow in the warp that basically stopped all those things hmm. from happening. You know what that reminds me of in a more modern game? D&D 5? Chaos magic for a sorcerer. Yeah. The, the chaos sorcerer. Yeah, if you're a chaos sorcerer and you basically botch a roll, you roll against uh, a chart of a hundred different things that could happen. Some good, some bad. Yeah, I think they would. I've only really seen the bad side of it. Yeah, but. and by the way, if you want to use random charts for anything, I think it's a great idea. I used it in a comedy sense, so you could use it in a serious sense. I used it in a comedy sense. I was running a Lion King game at Fear the Con 7 or 8, I forget which, and whenever somebody took damage, instead of taking hit point damage... I would have them roll a random insanity out of the wrist insanity chart. <laughs> so it'd just be something like, you know, you get your ass, it's, you know, of course it takes place all in the jungle. So you get your ass beat by like a crocodile or whatever. And somehow that gives you like a fear of birds. You know I mean? It's just, <laughs> just random crap. I think something you've got to watch when you use those charts is if I'm going to give some advice on an outdated idea that still pops up from time to time, holy crap, use some common sense. I am appalled, shocked and appalled. And if he was on the show, I'd tell him so to his face that John allowed a random roll of 66 damage to a level one party to stand. What? Yes, there's a roll on the chaos chart in 5e where you drop a fireball at your own feet. 
It doesn't do level damage. It's not right. like 1d6 per level, like a normal fireball. It does a straight 6d6 blast. And this TPK'd a level one party. Like, just everybody was dead. That was the end of the campaign. And it blows my mind that John did not do some editing there and say, wait a minute, this is a bit ridiculous. We probably shouldn't do this. In fairness, the encounter probably would have killed us anyway, because already two of us were down out of the three. But the third just killed the rest of us with the fire. I'm going to have to get John drunk, because I'm going to guess he was trying to escape Hatch. He didn't want a GM or something, and the dice just worked out in his favor. (laughs) Another really cool thing I ran into... um working with Pathfinder in 5e was the concept of, like, not just magical items, but magical artifacts, where, like, you have this great big smoky, cracked crystal ball, and you actually have to roll a d100 to use it, and, like, 60% of the time, it's gonna try to eat your face or make you go insane. (laughs) I love that. There's similar ones. The famous one is probably the Wand of Wonders. Ah, yes. There was another one that, I forget the name of it all of a sudden, but it's a bag of random stuff. You reach in, you have no idea what it is you're going to pull out. I've added these all into various bard You could also roll up random items completely. So if you wanted something other than just sword plus one, they had whole tables that would randomly generate a magical item, and it would be suddenly sword plus one, plus three versus lycanthropes, and it has an intelligence of thus, and it has this sort of goal in mind, and it's trying to corrupt you into this. And they had all these really cool tables for generating something like that i love intelligent items so much they're one of my favorite things well, in fantasy games you, the limiting thing about charts is you don't use your imagination the great thing about charts is it takes you out of your ruts it makes you look at things you probably wouldn't have otherwise considered the greatest one i think i ever ran into with one of those is um this tarnished really beat up looking monocle you can activate it for 30 minutes at a time and it'll make you able to see through illusions, disguises, see the truth of things. But it also makes you go crazy with every use. So it's like a gem of, was it gem of true sight or gem of true seeing? True seeing, yeah. True seeing, except baggage. You also have to lick it to activate it all over the lens, just for that extra gross. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> that sounds like something I would have created. That, that is really gross. I have a document full of these if you want to compare notes after this. I would love to see that because I would use those in Bard's game because I love creating either cursed items or just strange magical items. I, one of my favorites was a uh, Cat Ears of Cat's Grace. You put it on, it casts Cat's Grace. You've got plus four to dexterity, but it's cursed, and you don't want to take it off once it's on there. And it gives you cat ears? Yes. Like an anime con? Yep. Nice. So, Wayne, talking about 5th edition, there's something else I saw brought back in 5th edition that has been, once again, I can't say totally missing, but has been on the back burner of RPGs for a while, but was really big in the 70s and 80s, is the character archetype, where you had a character... That wasn't just your class, but it kind of went beyond that to describing more where you were coming from. For example, let's take MechWarrior 2nd Edition. There were many different types of MechWarriors, but one of the ones you could pick is you could say, well, I want to be the Grizzled Veteran. And it gave you a base template for starting stats and starting gear and whatever. And you could look at them as sample characters, but the way that the games described them was that these were archetypes. These were concepts that you could take and play in the game. Shadowrun did something very similar in its earlier editions. I actually believe it still does in 5th edition where it has these character concepts of like the burned out combat mage who's like given up part of his essence because in Shadowrun you have this essence versus like cyberware versus magic thing and as you use technology you lose essence which makes you lose magic but this guy has given up part of his magic to take on cybernetics and is 
got all these, you know, kind of built in ups and downs based on that. Pathfinder traits were kind of like that, but it wasn't nearly as effective. They brought it back big time in 5e because you take your character class. Then within your character class, you pick from a list of three was like specializations or whatever they're called. And then on top of that, you pick a background. So like in my case, in our current game, I'm playing a rogue base class, but I am playing an assassin as far as the type of rogue. And that's as opposed to a cut purse or a, a, you know, whatever. And then I ended up having to pick between two because the way that I wrote my character is he's chaotic good. And he works as an assassin for a church where he basically what he does, he goes out for his religion and he basically kills the worst of the worst of the worst of like evil magic users. And so I had to choose and both criminal and religious acolyte fit him. And so I, I think I ended up picking criminal, but you know, those together already set out, well, here's my skills. Here's my base equipment. And yeah, there was some wiggle room in there to customize it. But one thing that I think it did was it provides enough variety that I was able to get a character that fit what I wanted. So it's not like I was picking from one of four options. I mean, I'm just doing some head math here, but let's say you have like 10 classes times three specializations. That's 30 times 10 possible backgrounds. And that's like 300 combinations. And so you have enough variety there that you can make what you want and still have the wiggle room to express it and to customize it. But it saves you a lot of the minutia of trying to nickel and dime every skill and every bit of gear. It was so quick to start. Well, and I like that those backgrounds give you packs of things. So here's some equipment you get. You know, for some of them, here's languages. You get so many new languages. Here's some additional skills that you get your proficiency bonus yeah. with that you wouldn't necessarily get with the base class that you chose. It's something it, it, that actually matters. Right. It really informs to the background of your character. I think it adds, it's a really strong element. I concur. It's probably one of the other things I still like about 5th edition. You're starting to hate 5th edition? I hate's a strong word. The shine's off the apple for me. That's for sure. I mean, this is obviously not the episode to go into it. No, I am but, curious to hear about this, though. All right. We just hold it. We will have an episode for Brodor's honeymoon, his seven-year itch. Well, we have to call, you know, we have to call it Merilith. Right, because every iteration of Dungeons and Dragons, the first thing I do is I grab the monster manual and I read Merilith, and all things about the edition of D and D will f- will be viewed through the lens of the Merilith and how much I want to fuck her. <laughs> you know, Dad. Future bonus episode: <laughs> games we hate and why. <laughs> I think that's a lot of episodes of Fear of the Boot. I'm just curious. <laughs> that's true. Why specifically he's having to fall at five E? But well, that's going to be another topic for another time. Okay, I'm going to speak up in defense of callers. As someone who has run for a bunch of different groups, I have seen the problem of analysis paralysis where the group can't decide what the hell they want to do. Shadowrun is one of the worst offenders, which I know, Wayne, you haven't played, but the planning session, especially if the GM is doing something that's really detailed with the run, oh my gosh, can the planning sessions drag on forever, even outside of Shadowrun. The discussions on how you're going to handle the most banal of things turns into these marathon debates that are just absurd. And what I have found happens is one of two things. Either the group never moves forward at all, or what happens is eventually you get someone like Chad, who's kind of the unsettled alpha player 
who just says, I'm going to do this to get the game moving forward. And everyone else is angry. And pisses off the rest of the table in the process. As a game master, I'm not big on the idea of callers in general. I don't think I would use them often. But I would love to have someone at the table that everyone agrees upon before the game begins. And I start an egg timer. If you guys talk about something for more minutes than I care to let it go, I just point and say, Wayne, what is it the party's doing? We're done. And you take all the information on the table up to that point. You have to make a call. And everyone just says, you know, what? we're going to move forward and make it work. So I think actually the caller, as much as we kind of panned it, I think actually has some virtue. I think what I would do instead in that situation is just uh, basically I like the egg timer idea. But, you know, time's up. Okay, Brodor, what is your character doing? Dan, what is your character doing? If they don't work together, that's just part of the story. Couldn't agree on it. You go different ways. In my experience, and I, and I, I that Shadowrun experience, I've had that, right? right? A lot. Like, I've played Shadowrun, so I've had that experience. I think that's part of the game. 60 minutes of planning, 30 seconds of combat. Right. But uh, in, in my fifth edition D&D group, we've just naturally developed a caller. I mean, we don't call Brent the caller, but he's sort of, as the game has progressed and characters have developed, he's really developed into the party leader. So when they're in the field doing their missions, you know, he's the guy that everyone turns to as this is the person that's in charge. You know, not only is he, you know, a capable, a, a capable diplomat, but he's also got a pretty solid head on his shoulders. So they just kind of look to him. So when things get tense or kind of lulling and you have these circular arguments of, uh, you know, BS when they're trying to figure out what to do. Brent will just naturally step up and say, okay, guys, you know, you think this, you think that here's what we should do and why. And we move forward. Well, I think sometimes you can look to your alpha players, right? I think some games, of course, will give themselves to this more naturally because there might be a chain of command. Right. You're playing a military game. There's going to be someone who's the ranking officer. One thing I found, I don't want to get too much into this because it's a tangent, but one thing I found that doesn't always work as well as it should is giving the authority to the quiet person. Because as much as you want to draw them out, typically they end up just getting overtaken by an impatient alpha player anyway. Another topic for another time. But I think some games do lend themselves to this naturally. For example, when we played Star Trek Battletech, any of the ones that had rank, you just look to persons in charge and say, I need an answer. What are you ordering your people to do? See, if I were running one of those games, I would do that. You know, you're in charge. What are you ordering them to do? Then I would go around the table. What are you actually doing? <laughs> you know, and I guess that works. At least you've got the action moving again. You're not saying what you plan to do. It's yep. what are you doing? Yeah. What are you ordering them to do? Yeah. And then what are you actually doing? All right. I'm going to go way back here on you guys. And I don't know how many people even listening are going to be familiar with this one. Have you guys ever played the West End game Star Wars? I have never played it. I'm okay. very familiar with so it. So if but... you think Shadowrun is the Bucket OD6's game, then you've not played Western Games Star Wars. That is the Bucket OD6 game where you can, on a single skill check, throw enough dice to crush a whale. One of the things that they had in their adventures, and they're like modules and such, and this is going to sound so terrible and so antithetical to everything Fear the Boot stands for, everything I stand for as a voting American, but I'm going to defend as I think it actually has a role is they would have these little RP scripts at the start of the game. And what you were expected to do was like, you know, how we were talking about doing the dramatic readings of the end game scripts of the sample role play. Yeah. You would basically photocopy that or pass the book around 
and each person would read a part, which was oftentimes meant to be the characters. Like it wasn't like an NPC it was meant to be a character. And you had a script that you read through to get the game started. Now I'm going to let that sink in for a second. Cause I'm sure you come up with all the reasons. This sounds awful. It's going to be stilted. It's forced. It may not be what your character was going to say. All the obvious reasons why this is a terrible idea. Now let me give a defense of it on why I think it might be a good idea for starters. It does at least get the momentum going. It does at least start the game, usually in Meteor Rage, which I believe is actually the right way to pronounce it. But it does actually get the game started in the middle of the action. And the other thing that it did is if you're a quiet person or not that much in a role playing, it forced you to start doing that. And even if what's in your mind is my character would never say that, you're already putting yourself in the head of your character. And so it kind of pushes things. It gives them an artificial shove to get started. Now, where I think this could be even more useful, and I think it's wildly underutilized, if utilized at all, is this would be a great way to handle cutscenes with NPCs. So let's say, for example, you want to run your game in a somewhat theatrical style. So we're going to do this like a movie where the players are aware of things their characters are not. Okay, you've got, now you have my buy-in. Okay, <laughs> so you want to show them what's going on at the castle of Baron Von Badass, or you want to show them what's occurring even amongst their allied NPCs. You pass them out parts, whether that's completely scripted or maybe just pointers of what you need to talk through, and you have the group work through it, and you get a chance to play these other characters, and you get a chance to see the action in a way that saves the game master the embarrassment of role-playing with themselves. I could see that with pointers. I wouldn't want to do the full script. But the talking points, the this is the conversation that they need to have, these are their opinions on it when you're handing them the NPCs. Sure. I, I'd you like you could have a point like that. You could say, okay, Wayne's playing this character... Wayne's character needs to suggest a frontal invasion of this other empire. Brodor's character has to object to that because he doesn't think we have the manpower. Aisha suggests, well, we can go out and conscript the manpower and basically force them into service. Wow. You're a cruel person, by the way. Rude. (laughs) (laughs) Game Master Confession. This is an area that I really, really struggle with. I love the idea of there being a meta that the players are aware of that their characters are not right. And that they have information that they can learn about the world and the things that are going on sure. around them and not have firsthand contact with it in character. That's actually I a mean, question we get asked fairly, this, oh, go ahead. fairly often within the context of the podcast. How do you tell people about things like that? I want them to know what the villain's plan is and why the villain's doing it. But I want them to find out in a way other than constantly getting captured. This is one of the mistakes that I make as a game master, something that I do too often. And it's helpful in a sense that it gets the players talking. But I do these weird sidebars, right? So sometimes it'll be the end of an encounter or the end of a conversation, or there'll be a brief pause in the gameplay. And I will insert a sidebar about X. So there's no way that the PCs would know this information but they get sort of a glean behind the curtain or into the meta of the game. And I've had one of my players actually comment that he's like, you know, you're the first game master that I've ever gamed with that does that. And I'm like, yeah, I know it's, it's this, that the other goes, Oh no, no, I really enjoy it. I don't know how I'll ever know that in character, but it's nice to see 
yeah, that sure. behind the scenes. So I'm stoked by this idea. I think that's really, really intriguing. I've never done anything like it. After the campaign's over, then I'll go back and tell what they missed and what some of the meta was. I have never given out a piece of meta information that the players know that the characters don't. I guess it all really like depends on how much you trust your players to not metagame. 87%. <laughs> depends on the group. It's a very precise number. <laughs> I kind of run anywhere from 0% to 90 some odd percent. So here's why I do it. It's all completely ego based, but it comes from I've done this amount of work. I've created this world. I want you're, you to say it. We have all of these things going on in character, but there's something more there that I want to share, and I'm concerned that we're never going to get to it. Sure. I, I can think of tons of things like that where you go watch a movie and it, something seems incredibly ill-explained, and then you come to find out later, oh, well, in the backstory, it's this, this, and this, and this. It's, it's like, like, well, it would have been nice if they'd showed us that in the movie. Or in the book version, it explained Yeah, it or something like that. But I it, guess part of it for me might be, as a player, I would rather not have the meta information that my character doesn't. Because then I have to think about... Does my character know that or does my character not know that? So let me ask that if from the onset, if from the game pitch, I said, okay, so Wayne, something that we're going to do at the beginning of the game session is opposed to us doing the in character, we're reading a script that's been written for your, the PCs. We're going to actually do a brief script of something else that's going on in the world uh, that involves city states or NPCs or whatever that pertain to the adventure at hand or, or the, the current plot line, and you're going to get exposed to information that you're not going to know in character, but it will speak to the greater meta plot of the game. Would that bother you? I would try it because I try anything when it comes to gaming, but I wouldn't be excited about it because gotcha. for me, I just don't like having to do that line of this is what I know versus this is what my character knows. I'm already doing that for system information. Right. I don't want to do that. For I mean, I found other ways of set. getting that information in an in-character way. The party gets captured, tired one, but it does yeah. work. The party intercepts a letter. Maybe the villain starts off as an ally of the party, or maybe someone who's from the villain's organization defects. And so you start to get information that way. But where I got introduced to it was I played under a game master who saw all of his games as a movie. That was just how they were structured. They were structured in the scenes and setting and all this kind of stuff. And he would do these sort of changes of scene or these breakaways where the camera was no longer on the party. It was on some group of NPCs and he would simply narrate it. He would just narrate what was happening. And it did add something to the story in many cases. I mean, I guess, I don't know, we also were pretty good about not metagaming. But, you know, along these lines, one of the other ones I'm going to speak in defense of, as much as we make fun of it, box text. So, you're playing through the module, you walk into a room, there's box text of what happens when you walk into the room. What you see, what the NPC says, oftentimes it's prose that is somewhere between stilted and outright awful, but there it is. The one thing that I got to give it props for is it does at least make you think about an area. If all I give you is a module that basically says, this is where you walk into and here's a map of it or whatever, you don't really think much beyond that. People tend to play the game at the level they're experiencing it. And if you stop someone and make them at least kind of talk through the room, I think, if nothing else, it's building good habits, and it's forcing people to think about the room 
in terms of more than just the exits out of there and the levers they can pull. The other thing I like about the idea of it is you don't have to think back, did I describe that or not? Because you can look at whether it be a module or a script you wrote yourself, writing your own box text. Right. You know exactly how that room was described because you can look back and see word for word what you had written down. Because sometimes I get into that situation of, did I describe that part of the room? They're not catching on it. Is it because I didn't tell them about it or is it because it's just not interesting to them? So all my gaming notes are done as outlines and bullet points, right? And so if there is something important about a room, I will bullet point it. So I'll have two or three or five or, you know, however many bullet points I have in this particular room or situation that I want to make sure that I certainly describe to the players. But I got to tell you, I'm pro box text. You know, I like the idea of there being this pre-written thing that basically, you know, the acrid smell of et cetera, et cetera. You know, I think that's I think it's interesting. And I'm not saying that I'm a great writer, but I like the element that it brings to the game. Yeah. And I think that probably the most salient point that you brought up was that it enforces good habits. This is more in regards to cinematography than role-playing games, but one of the rules that I picked up was if you can have a fight or an encounter, if it doesn't fully utilize the terrain, like if you could have this same fight in a hallway or in an open field, then what are you doing? Stop and go back and redesign it. Box text isn't just a thing to convey what the room looks like. In an encounter, it can shape the entire thing if you write it correctly. I completely agree with that. And, you know, actually talking about encounters, though, that's something else that I would like to see brought back. Or I think at least has a use in its correct role, which is role playing used to be thought of in terms of, I mean, people still talk about story beats, but a role playing game used to take place as a series of encounters. You go into the town and you meet this NPC and you have a conversation. That's an encounter. You leave the town and run into a group of goblins. That's another encounter. You come to a door that's locked and trapped. That's an encounter. And so all these moments in the story were described as encounters. Now, I don't necessarily think a game needs to be that structured. But there were two things about the encounter that I thought were kind of nice. One is it does help make sure you have the story subdivided into these very palatable pieces that the game master can look at individually and understand or tweak or realign without necessarily having to think too much about how this chains and everything else. But the other thing that it was kind of nice for was especially in games that were progression heavy, like D and D one of the things that used to be true in D and D was you got the encounter XP for overcoming the encounter, not necessarily for how you did it. And I have to give mad props to George, Little Sexy from Trapcast, who's running our current online game of 5th edition, because we just had an encounter in the most recent game where we were walking along and a bunch of basically highway robbers stopped us and they were like, oh, you got to pay the toll to get by. And they start trying to shake us down for stuff. And we start asking, like, why would we pay this toll? They're like, oh, because we're honest businessmen. We're looking to trade goods. And it was all obviously BS. But I decided, you know what? My character's a good guy. Just because they're evil, I'm not going to get off on killing them. And so I'm like, okay, if you're honest merchants, what do you have? <laughs> and they showed us a whole bunch of what were probably stolen or strong-armed wares that they were selling at varying prices, ranging from outlandish to 
outlandishly <laughs> undercutting. Cut yeah, cutthroat <laughs> prices. And I ended up buying something off of them and giving them a tip and basically saying, like a cash tip on top of the purchase and saying, this is just to ensure that when we come back the other direction, your shop will still be open to us and we won't have any trouble getting through here. And George rolled with it. He did not force the combat. He was blown away by it. And he gave us full XP for it. And I got to give him mad props for that because it didn't force it to be resolved in a particular way. You know, old video games did a lot to shape my understanding of this, both in regards to box text and encounters, because in regards to the box text, you think back to the old video games, all you had was a low resolution stick man in an empty square of a room. And it would say, grab your instruction manual and turn to paragraph 205. And that would give you the description of the room because they couldn't represent it in graphics. They had to describe it to you. The same thing's true at a table. Unless you own enough miniature terrain to make everything you could encounter, people are just looking at Cheetos and Mountain Dew. You have to bring that alive to them in some new way. But then also in terms of encounters, the older D&D games, when you hit an encounter, you would have options like parlay, retreat, attack, so on and so forth. It would give you half a dozen different options of how to resolve that encounter. For gaming, especially, you want to think about like risk versus reward. If you make combat the only rewarding way to get XP, then nobody's going to bother with anything except combat. Yep, because they can't parlay, they can't run away. Yeah. This is a whole different show, but I'm a fan of XP over time, not XP for encounter for achievement. We're like, yeah, we're just going to, you know, X number of things have occurred, X number of major plot points have been resolved. Let's talk about we're going to have to do another show on handing out advancement points because John's view of this has also morphed since the last time we did an episode on this, whereas mine has remained the same. John has actually moved closer to my position. So I I do want to come back to that in a future show, because even though we've done a show on it before, how to hand out character advancement, I think our views have evolved enough that we could have a fresh conversation on this. Yeah, I know my opinions on it have changed as I've played more systems. Well, I want to thank all of you guys for tuning in. And once again, Aisha, I want to welcome you aboard to Fear the Boot. Thank you very much. Glad to have you here. And if you guys want to send her a proper welcome to the team, then I will be sure to link her forum account in the show notes. You'll have to make a forum account if you don't already have one to use this. But you can hop on there and send her a PM welcoming her to Fear the Boot and also, I'm very appreciative for the work that she's doing for us. And once again, to those of you that are contributing to our Patreon to make it possible for us to employ her gainfully doing this work. You know, and Dan, she hasn't been with us long enough. She doesn't have enough furry porn. I would not be so quick to judge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do I have a story about furries, though? I don't know how much of it I should tell this episode, but I found a place that is offered to make a fully articulated gnarl costume for me. So I don't know if I'm going to get it or not, but it, it may finally be a true persona for me. But anyway, we'll come back to that later if I actually have anything more to say on the topic. Let's have a negative episode of, you know, furry porn stories, apparently. I'm down for this. <laughs> we need you some negative content episode anyway. We got some, which once again, if you're on the Patreon, look for that. We do have some negative episode, at least clips, about some three to five minute clips we're going to be releasing. But we do need to get a full blown one going here. All right. As for you guys at home, once again, check the show notes as always for links to a bunch of sundry things. And thank you guys for tuning in. Have a great week and great games. And we will catch you next time. This has been a production of Fear the Boot, copyright 2016. 
Listeners are free to use this episode in any non-commercial endeavor so long as credit is provided to feartheboot.com. You can find previous episodes and other resources at feartheboot.com. Fear the Boot is also a member of the RPG Academy network of shows. You can find other great shows in this network at therpgacademy.com slash network.